Hey podcast listeners, this is Liz. And this is Zyme. And this is our last episode of 2016. Woo! Quite the year. Quite the year. Try to be excited, Zyme. Try to be excited. I know. I know. I think that, you know, this is the year <laughs> that I defended. And a term that we coined, I think, in one of our previous conversations that we didn't record was, what, postpartum dissertation depression? <laughs> right. <laughs> On top of Got everything else. PhD big time. Yep. Um. <laughs> yeah, so Zion and I were reflecting on how we've been saying 2016 is the worst, just doing the most, and it's just the absolute worst. But a lot of good things have happened in 2016, like Zion getting a PhD. I. <laughs> insecure. <laughs> insecure came out. Uh, Atlanta was good. Atlanta was great. Simone Biles Blackness was awesome. Peak blackness was great for me. Margaret Show exists, so I'm happy. Oh, yeah. Lemonade. <laughs> Solange. Lemonade. Solange. Making that seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh Even if gosh. the table is on fire. Bruno Mars. <laughs> Bruno Mars. I just love that he exists. He liked the shoulder work. My, okay. my family didn't know that he's um, Asian-American. Oh, really? He's Filipino. Yeah. Well... Your your family learned something in 2016, so this is yeah, great. Yeah, we learned a lot of things. Even, like, the other <laughs> night, we were watching this movie um, with Kevin Hart and The Rock, and my family, I'd always assumed oh, yeah. that The Rock was black, and they didn't know he was Samoan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a funny story for you. Well, so I won't say his name on the podcast, okay. but uh, basically, his PhD advisor wrote in fellowship article for a fellowship recommendation letter for him and said that he was black and tried to talk oh, about the I know he as a black about. person but he's not black <laughs> he's, he's he's like you know west indies caribbean and so it was just really funny he's like indian i think and um or indian ancestry rather and it was just funny because we look at him like, oh, the black guy from the Caribbean, man, it must have been so hard. <laughs> He's like, what? Like, he'll be like, oh, I'm not black. Well, unless you ask our advisor and then I'm black. That is that is such an interesting situation to be in. Also weirdly related to the do, research man. I'm doing right now. Really? Yeah. Um, so preparing for MLA coming up next week. I'm presenting on a panel that's responding to this really amazing book that was published in our field this past year called The Intimacies of Four Continents by Lisa Lowe, who's this Mm -hmm. amazing Asian-American academic I've looked up to for a very long time. And it's basically looking at the late 18th, early 19th century and how, and she's bringing together how slavery, um, Asian coolism, the coarse labor of Chinese and Indian immigrants Mm -hmm. um, into the West Indies and slavery and modern liberalism and like disposition native peoples all work together. Hmm. Um, so that's something that I'm reading right now. And I'm thinking through basically the figures of different, like mixed race, black and Asian women in the West Indies right now. Hmm. So. That's pretty interesting. So you're writing an article about this, or you're giving a presentation? I'm conference? giving a conference conference paper on this. What does that mean? A conference and, paper? Oh, I froze on you. No, I <laughs> I can still see you. Yeah, you're cool. Um, giving a conference paper in the humanities, my understanding is quite different than in STEM because we actually have it all written out. 
and we read the paper is typically what we do. Do you read it out loud to yes. people? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. I know that disciplines like electrical engineering have conference papers, and those are considered to be just as valid as actual articles. Wow. I want journals to Because yeah. it has, because uh-huh. the conference papers go through the same process. Yeah, like ours are vetted as well. Uh-huh. But I'm not sure but, if they just go to the conference and read it out loud. Uh-huh. Um, that's interesting. And, and I don't know if you, I have a little, I'm like, really? You just read it out loud? Like, that's that's interesting. But I guess that's how your field does it. So mm-hmm. I'm not really sure like, what again, else you would do. Like, our field is so, like, the, the structure of the sentences and the word themselves are so much a part of the meeting that that cannot be divorced from the contents. So that's why we do, can't really do slides or what have you. I mean, like, there's some attempts, I think, to sometimes shift to different modes of presentation that perhaps owe something to STEM methods, but the standard conference paper in the humanities, or at least in literature, is definitely the read-aloud sort. Mm, it's okay. I will respect that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, my presentations have a lot more. <laughs> I know, a lot more of me talking and presentation style that mm-hmm. really play into that, not just in the research that you do. But how about we switch gears a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about the podcast? So, Zion, Let's I'm going to make you unprepared yet again for the second time. And uh, you're going to be turning the questions on me. Exactly. So the, the most fun you can ever have is to ask the questions that way someone has to answer before you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was your favorite moment on the podcast this year? So if I could stick to what I said before was a little bit of a cop out is like, I'm just relieved that we have a podcast still. <laughs> Maybe that's like a low bar seemingly, but again, like during this past year, it's not just that Liz left Ithaca, but I left Ithaca. We moved time zones apart and it's, it's definitely hard just on like on like the technical level on the everyday level. Like we had to like learn new skills. Um, we have many failed episodes that did not make it to you, the listeners because we're still perfecting what the technology is. But also I think that having the podcast be completely dislocated from the basic Cornell has been a huge shift for us. I think that a lot of the resources that do exist in terms of trying to create community or especially support um, minoritized people in the academy like ourselves are often institution-based and to suddenly like not have an institution as a base to just be doing it on our own is I guess sort of daunting um, and you really sort of have to be more independent and I'm glad that we're able to to continue that and I think that part of again the project that we've we've had going is like Liz's great quotation if you haven't seen it from Twitter about academia is not the place that I dreamt it would be but the place I'll make it and what I'm proud of this year is not just that the podcast exists but I think we've really expanded it in terms of bringing so many people on as fantastic people on as guests and trying to grow this community of what we want academia to be. Yeah. It's a great answer, Zion, but it's not the answer of your favorite moment in the podcast. That's more an answer of what are you most proud of about the podcast? Yeah. So I will also answer what I am most proud about on the podcast to give you time to think about what your favorite moment on the podcast was. (sighs) I find. (laughs) So 
I am most proud of the fact that in addition to Zion talking about the challenges that we've had, we've both gone through moving transitions, Zion to a postdoc in Vancouver and myself to a postdoc in uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm proud of, I guess, the way the mission of the podcast has changed. I personally feel like this year the podcast kind of had a mission and it had it had a platform that filled a space that was needed. And it was something that not only helped me get through my own transition, but I realized it was helping other people as well. And so being able to create a platform where women can talk about their research and be scholars first and then women second, so to speak, is really important to me. Because I think so often in our careers or in our workplaces, Sometimes we get asked to do things like, oh, you're going to be the woman representative. You're going to be some diversity initiative. And so just to be able to just talk about things and to present the information that you know in that way is good. And I've learned so much from everyone that we've had on the podcast. I've learned a lot from Zine. And I'm really grateful to feel like I'm making this family of scholars that if I ever had enough money, this would be an awesome university <laughs> to be a part of. Oh, if only. So I'm excited about the direction the podcast is going and all the cool people we get to meet on the podcast and interview and the strength that it gives them and and the ability that it gives them to reflect on their own scholarship and their own work has been very, very Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah, and I think this also comes to a point we were talking about um, previously, which is it isn't that it seems to be really important for our guests to hear themselves talk about their research. Mm-hmm. And like this sort of refl- uh, goes to what we had in a previous episode with um, Dr. Chanda about this, her fantastic idea that like you should take, make sure that people take photos of yourself presenting. So you mm-hmm. can sometimes, mm-hmm. cause the example that you need to see is just yourself because sometimes that's the case in the field, but sometimes just listening to yourself, be an authority um, is both a really jarring, but also a really important experience. I think that we, it's a sort of a universal thing that everyone hates the sound of, their own voice and yeah. Liz and I have definitely struggled with that from the beginning Absolutely. but that's something that we hear a lot from our guests after the whole process about that people our, our guests find it very dissonant in a way to hear themselves but that it ends up I think being a really powerful process that they can recognize themselves as experts and hear um, hear themselves as the voice literal voice of authority on these subjects Absolutely. So Zine, now for the next question about the wrap up, the end of the year for the PhD, this podcast. So I've given me that stank face. face. Um, No, but really, what was, Mm -hmm. what was one of your standout moments um, on the podcast this year? Chanda for me, Mm -hmm. like personally, it just meant so much for um, Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein to be on the podcast because she's someone who I've admired online as an amazing physicist, as amazing spokeswoman for like women, LGBT, um, black scientists, all these different topics online for such a long time. Um, I mean, I, I remember I was in, initially even excited when she started like following me back on Twitter and that felt like <laughs> accomplishment. I was like, oh my goodness. And then eventually she started listening to the podcast. I was like, oh my goodness. And so to have her be one of the, I think like the penultimate 
episode of 2016 for us really for me captures the way that the podcast has developed um and the way that I feel that as I was talking about our guests feeling like their voices of authority like that I feel a greater sense of how I am able to be a voice in a com- in this conversation mm-hmm. and she's just so awesome I was so excited to record that <laughs> this would of course not come through on the podcast but I was figuring like what makeup I'd put on like Chand and I both really like um, bright lipsticks so I, I chose like this bright red lipsticks expressly for her because I was and I remember that Chanda was tweeting at the time like I should like she's like I think she said like she shampooed her hair her and shaved her legs for to look for to interview her and even though you know maybe it'll come across to our listeners in some strange ambient mm-hmm. way but I think you it know did. but the feeling is there yeah you could just feel the smoothness feel the brilliant <laughs> lipstick feel the smoothness <laughs> no legs were touched during the taping of those episodes all legs were safe yeah. that we know of maybe Zion was doing something but we don't know <laughs> that's the benefit of recording okay. remotely by the way you could wear whatever you want and people may not even know that you're not wearing pants which is great although it wouldn't matter with Zion and myself I think we've reached this level of friendship that we could just like we could do that but you know if you know you feel a little breezy you know it doesn't matter yeah, I think this is also like one of the assets of, of course, doing it as a podcast and not as like a YouTube video series. Like at least, yeah, one less thing to worry about. Yeah, not to mention our skin colors were so different. It'd be really hard to find one color that worked well for both of us, which we know from when we took oh our God. promo photos. I know. In case maybe this is an interesting thing to address since we're doing this whole meta podcast thing. Um, you, if you're on SoundCloud or Twitter or on Facebook, definitely check out our header image, which is of Liz and I next to each other. And you'll notice that Liz looks very dark. I look very pale. <laughs> Part of this has to do with the inadequacies of photo technology um, that go back actually to the very inception of photography, the 19th century, that it has been bi- uh, biased in terms of how do you, how do you depict melanin? first of all, and then how do you compensate for people of different skin tone in the same picture? So, so it's just really interesting, mm-hmm. the, the visual dynamic. Like, I feel like it ends up, because of the contrast between us, it almost sets us up as a type of like binary between us that I don't think actually mm. exists. You know, they're like, there's such a stark contrast. It's like, yeah, I... She's Asian. She's Oh black, my God, they're next to they're each other. But they're friends. Yeah, we're like, What's gonna happen yeah, the rush next? hour of academia. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I was, this is probably going to sound horrible, but the first thing I noticed is our breast size difference. <laughs> because we're kind of like, and some of them are like very close to each other. And I'm like, oh my God. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but that's in the I've been dealing with my entire life. Anyway, oh. that didn't happen on the podcast. My favorite uh, my favorite moment of the podcast, uh, I'm going to say two because one happened off the podcast, but it was just amazing. So one, oh, yes. we got to interview Meredith Toulousen, who is a um, albino Filipino transgender writer, Yes, mm-hmm. who is also a transgender woman. And she was currently at the time... At the time we took the interview, she was working at BuzzFeed. So we got to go to BuzzFeed headquarters, which was amazing for me 
I was basically mm-hmm. a big fan so girl. Cool. I'm also a fan of Another Round podcast. So I was really fangirling out, taking pictures of their desk and things, and just like, oh my god, yeah. I'm here. And it's like, it was so sad that they weren't there at the yeah. time. Anyway. But no, anyway. it was hilarious. It, it was it was fine. So the interview went well, and the interview was amazing. Meredith is an amazing woman, an amazing person. But after... Go back in our archive and check it out. <laughs> yes, go check out the <laughs> Meredith episode. And we had dinner afterwards. And one of the things I really remember from that was just being able to have this moment where we were just talking about dating. And there's a certain point where Meredith was giving me lots of dating advice. And I felt so, like, proud and honored to um, just to be in the moment of it all, to kind of really have it sink in that... I can learn something about being a woman from a transgender woman. And um, mm-hmm. and I think that in some spaces, people may not even assume that or they, they may not um, appreciate that. But she had so much to offer me and so much wisdom and, you know, confidence, advice. And <laughs> it was just such an amazing moment for me to partake in. And I was I was extremely grateful for that that, that experience. I remember it was really funny because I think that when we um, first met her together, Liz, you said something like, "Oh, at last I don't have to feel like a stalker right. because <laughs> Liz had not met I like Meredith. I was friends with Meredith before, but Liz, I think, started following Meredith's right. work online and became friends on, on Facebook. But then, you know, meeting Meredith made Liz feel. Like a right, because when you only know someone, <laughs> I think there's a certain point where someone gets enough followers or enough, their work is so public that they start to become more careful about who they um, make friends on Facebook or let into their personal circle. Mm-hmm. And so I am not, and I'm also conscientious of that that barrier. And so... Even though I knew her through Zine, that doesn't mean that she, Meredith, knew me. So I was very happy when I could finally say, hey, we've met now. This is great. I feel like I actually know you, not like I've actually read all your work because that's what everyone else has also done. But mm-hmm. it was just a powerful moment for me to, to stand woman to woman, even though we have different experiences. Myself as a cisgender woman and Meredith as a trans woman but to be able to learn something from each other in a way that wasn't mm-hmm. in this regard, there was no difference. Do you understand? Zion, you have a great way of also, yes. you're very eloquent in this. No, I think, I think, yeah, I think that the way that you're trying to capture it is that you were communicating across difference in a way that didn't erase that difference. Yes. Yes. Because I've learned enough to know that saying, Oh, we're all the same is erasing someone's experience. Even though mm-hmm. the way I felt after or during the conversation was, oh my God, we're, 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 we are, we are the same. I would, I mean, it, it didn't matter for the purpose of this conversation. And we have a lot more in common than I think other people might've thought. Or I'm thinking about people mm-hmm. who may not have trans friends or openly trans friends who may have some hesitance. And, you know, there was no 
there was no hesitance. There was no, there was no block at all. My favorite episode on the podcast, um, and I, I can also admit here that some of these are skewed towards the end of the podcast. We had some great ones in the beginning of the year as well. They were just a little farther away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's the recency bias, but also I think it's more reflection on ourselves than our guests at all because like we were just try- trying to figure out what the flow of the interview, of doing interviews was like mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Although interviewing Michelle Tong and talking about international students, interviewing Danielle Morgan and talking about comedy, Yay. hilarious Shiloh Saltzman <laughs> was also very great talking about adjunct life and the perils of her first year after her PhD were all very interesting conversations that reflected many different women's experiences with PhD and what they study and, and life after the PhD and during. One of my favorite moments was with Samus. Samus, uh, her, that's her stage name. Her uh, real name is Anango, and she's a PhD student in science technology studies. And I remember very vividly, I was asking her how she got into rap. She's a rapper. And she was talking about how she enjoyed making music, and she started making beats, and she sent them to a friend. And then the friend sent it back with comments, but also put their voice on top of it. And then she was angry, right? And mm-hmm. then she, she said, if someone's going to, if someone's going to sing over my music, it's going to be me. If someone's going to do anything over my music, it's going to be me. And for me, it just resonated with the idea of owning your work and not letting anyone else take credit mm-hmm. or take the shine from your work. And I, I've definitely felt that way so much. And that's been an evolution for me just to take ownership of my work. Like, no, I may not be rapping, but no, you're not going to take credit for the work that I've done. This is mine. So there was just such a sisterhood talking to her that I really, really appreciated. And this was also a great mm-hmm. year for Samus. We're so proud of what she did. Like her, her um, pieces in space came out through Don mm-hmm. Giovanni Records. She's been expanding her, her shows. Like, she's been getting so much recognition, getting re- rich um, write-ups yeah. from Pitchfork and many other her album is publications. Amazing. Yeah, Pieces in Space. Mm-hmm. I have a copy. I have her, uh, copies for her other albums as well. It's, it's so great. I love that she exists. I have a t-shirt oh, with her on that's it. that's so nice. <laughs> that I wore for the interview, which is like, I was like, this feels Do super it. dorky. I mean, dorky at this level is good. Yeah. It's important. So what's the greatest lesson that you might take? Stop looking at me like that. You don't, I, oh my God, do you Liz. not like reflecting on your work? I do. I do. I just, uh, I feel a great responsibility Why? resting upon me in terms of responding. What is the best no. lesson I learned? Also, this gives me flashbacks Why? to my dad. My dad used to do this to me all the time through elementary and high school. Every day at dinner, he'd be like, what's the best thing you learned at school today? <laughs> Because he thought that it was like a really positive thing to do, but instead he'd just get very cranky, you know, child and teenager sign, just being like, whatever, dad. And so, like, that's sort of like my instinctual response. So, grumpiness. So, you were I love still learning. like <laughs> teenage sign. Asking you to reflect on the podcast has triggered some deep familial issues, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know what I can ask you. Everything's always tied to something. 
That's true. Every well, such is life. What have I learned? Hmm. I think that maybe to go back to something that um I I noticed when you're talking about the whole Meredith thing is like again, like I feel that because of the growing prominence of her podcast in whatever limited way and um given like the statue stature of our various speakers, like we are both seeing what it's like to negotiate for our friends to negotiate having a, some sort of a public persona, mm-hmm. but we ourselves are also shifting into that. Mm-hmm. And so that has been really interesting in terms of like both thinking of ourselves as authorities, but negotiating what it means to have different level of persona, mm-hmm. which I think we always do as academics, but shifting into the public mode does even more so. And I guess it's particularly on my mind right now because in the past few years and even right now, there's been so much controversy over academics who go into the public sphere and, and say things and then they come under fire in various ways. And that there's been great writing done by like um Tressy, I think, or Tracy um Mc PhD, she tweets under, she's mm-hmm. a black feminist writer works in education um i really love this piece that she wrote that i shared and she she reshared recently because of um uh, a recent uh, debacle over on twitter which was like if institutions want to have the prestige of public scholarship but they need to be prepared to actually mm-hmm. protect their scholars and she's right. like outlined like really concrete ways like how does faculty governance work how does it work what is a, um, a system in place to protect protect people especially given that like recent episode or incident at Jexel. yeah yeah so sorry that's exactly what i'm talking about um george um i can't remember i had i don't know how to try to pronounce his name um but it also made me sort of reflect in a way that what the stakes that we're doing could be quite dangerous mm-hmm. and i think that we've been very lucky so far like we've like i think this is something that we have to admit that being woman in public and with an online presence, especially women of color, we are very vulnerable. And the academics who do get attacked, um, obviously, are also overwhelmingly women and, and women of color, people of color. And it can affect their careers really severely. And I know that there's cases where people's work mm-hmm. has been jeopardized. And what does it mean for us to be doing this independently without institutional protection in a way? It also made me rethink of this uh, blog post that I wrote for the MLA Commons for graduate students of the profession about being a public scholar that although it seems like a necessity that we develop these other skills in particular the public scholarships that will prepare us in our professionalization and even in alt careers at the same time it's so incredibly dangerous because if people are barely protecting tenured right. faculty what what about people who are untenured what about graduate students what about postdocs like us and so it's not quite that of a regret writing that but I think that in conversations about public scholarship, we need to take, pay a lot more careful attention to how institutions are are not backing us up. Because as ballsy as we may be, mm-hmm. if something goes wrong, like there or could be a lot how of do we create committees that can actually put this in legislation? Because another issue is that this is so new that universities actually can respond in any way they please because there is no. There's no writing, there's no legislation, there's no committee, mm-hmm. there's no precedent, right? So the, it, if, there's no, if there's no infrastructure for dealing with social media and faculty, then 
there's no way to say, hey, you you treat this professor unfairly. You do not give them due diligence, the due practice. You let them go. So part of it is actually trying to develop, trying to develop the rules and regulations around that so that people have a bill of rights. But I, yeah, I do find this scary. There's also a case in uh, for Michigan, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but the um, the Republicans in Michigan are asking University of Michigan, or is it Wisconsin? I think it's Michigan. Wisconsin? Oh, it's Wisconsin. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, yeah, Massachusetts. So they're asking um, faculty there. People so they're, also Wisconsin, they're asking the University of Wisconsin to cancel a class on whiteness. And if they don't, then they won't mm-hmm, get the state mm-hmm. funding. And, you know, I think that's a bad precedent. I mean, it, it's already been happening already. People like tweeting something, right? Salida. Salida? Salida. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. just really scary. I mean, even regardless of what the top, what the class is actually called, there has to be some line where you can't revoke funding because it's a class that you don't like. And thinking about mm-hmm. our own careers, you know, when do we say something that goes too far? And how do we know what's too far? We don't really know what's too far, especially if all it takes is like a mob or I wouldn't even say a mob, that sounds, that's too um, sensationalized, but if a group of people, and that people can be anywhere from like 100 people to 1,000 people get online and start saying something, does that then become like, oh, we're asking for their heads, we're asking for their jobs? Because that's what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this post Stephen Salada moment is... I think is is really scary, and I definitely recommend our listeners to check out various things he's written. Because I thought he had this uh, piece that came out a couple months ago about the importance of being a thorn in university mm. administration side, and there's this way that uni- universities, as all institutions, have a tendency towards conservatism, even though it's supposed to foster the type of provocation right. that makes good academic work. And so, we as academics have to make sure that within the space of the university, we continue to continually push back. And the need for a certain type of disease and discomfort um, to be a part of intellectual discourse, because if we just stick to what is comfortable, that is right. And then thinking for me, yeah, how do I do that in STEM, where none of this is even in the mm-hmm. realm of my science, right? Like I'm not, I'm not going yeah. out there saying macrophages are evil, stem cells all day. What <laughs> you know, I'm not. <laughs> I believe that we've institutionalized these cells and like we should never study these kind of nanoparticles right like that kind of stance would be like okay but that's what she studies so that makes some sort of sense but so for me to go out here and say hey I think we should all be treated fairly and equally or you're not giving people equal opportunity or hey you didn't what's up with these Nobel Prizes it looks like you're not giving women the Nobel Prizes they oh, deserve. Yes. We have to talk about Rest Vera. in peace, Vera Rubin, which now she can't get it because you don't give it, mm-hmm. give out this award posthumously. So going out to say those kinds of things and then wondering, am I, how am I going to be looked at when it's time for jobs? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be, am I going to be called radical? Oh my, and all the, of course, you know, people will say this, like, so it's not just us as thinking about this, but I, I mean, we've encountered this too on Facebook to some extent, but people saying, oh, I don't know, I don't want to be called the troublemaker. I don't want to be, 
I don't want to be known as someone who creates problems. And it's like, well, right now you're making it harder for change to happen because now I'm the only voice that's there. Actually, this was a personal situation now that I remember the exact details. But if you actually legitimately have a problem, but you don't say anything, it makes it sound like I'm the only one who has a problem, which doesn't help either of us because now I look crazy and they're going to say like, well, maybe she's just a troublemaker when no, there's an actual problem, but you were just trying to write Mm -hmm. it all out thinking that if you get a job, you're not going to have, you can make change. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's scary. I agree with you, Zion. It's a a huge lesson. And I know about you, but it, it feels like for me, I think it's a matter of time before something happens. And the longer it's nothing's happened, the, the more afraid I get. <laughs> but I'm also glad nothing's happened. What? Um, the trolls finding us. Uh-huh. Yeah. The trolls finding us. They'd have to read the whole yeah. pod, listen to the whole podcast, though, to really. Actually, maybe that's not true because Margaret yeah, showed. Yeah, they'd have to put some commitment to it. Right? Someone just read, someone listened to the podcast, wrote an article about it, about Margaret Cho was talking about the Tilda Swinton emails. They wrote an article, oh, yes. and I'm sure that wasn't what her entire interview was about. It was probably like a minute of it. Wrote an article. That article goes viral. Mm-hmm. Causes Tilda Swinton to put out all the emails. Yeah, that is <sighs> another quite mess. Also, I think it comes to a point that resonates beyond academia that citation Ooh. is always political who gets cited what parts of things get t- um cited here i have to give a nod to the amazing queer of color scholar mm-hmm. sarah ahmed she's on twitter um she wrote a great one of her first blog posts was particularly about the politics of citation and making sure that you like cite women people of color queers in work i like so that's this. something i think about a lot now citation is political Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you can look at so many people's articles and like, oh, they have this many citations because half of them are from that lab. They just cite their own work consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I remember that actually it was our friend Michelle Tong who posted something, I think uh, a study that was picked on the social sciences that something like um, mm-hmm. men doing research in, in their articles overwhelmingly cite themselves whereas like women are less likely to and so because of that then they just they look like they have higher right the whatever citation index i'm not sure what the term is that you guys use yeah and i think in the humanities is particularly important because even though the humanities likes to i think pat itself on the back and think that it's like so much more progressive slash radical than um other fields nonetheless because our discipline is and all our disciplines are built on different types of whiteness implicit in like colonial various forms of colonialism and imperialism like just the way that if you talk about something like like the Mm -hmm. idea of the human or the individual or any like of the big ideas you end up often like unthinkingly reproducing this genealogy of of whiteness that again people end up citing the same the same philosophers the same same critics and so in a way like even though you're encouraged to do that as part of citational of, of what's good considered a good literature view in a way every time then that literature literature review can end up being complicit in continuing to bolster the power mm-hmm. of this pre-existing hierarchy. Like as we say, to these are, this is a quintessential reading list. And now that's the only reading list 
which yes. means you don't have to read anything else mm-hmm, besides mm-hmm. those to get the gist of what's happening. Yeah. It reminds me of how the conversation we had recently about, and this is something that Liz and I are perhaps thinking of addressing uh, in the ne- in the coming year about this phenomenon we yeah, call white we feminism. Yeah, we got to talk about this, people. It mm-hmm. is so important, not only in the wake of the Hillary Clinton defeat, but in the rise of internet uh, safety penism, and the rise of pantsuit nation, and the rise of in the hurricane of white woman tears, we need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because at the one hand, like, of course, we're very happy about the energies that are pushing feminism to the forefront, but we have to ask what type of feminism and why is it, let's say, like a reading list will mention Simone de Beauvoir, but not for, mention for our listeners Lord, who may be white example. and or maybe women and maybe white women who have, if you've never heard the term white woman tears, that's an actual thing. So please look that up. Google mm-hmm. will be your friend here. Yeah, it actually comes from a scholarly article by an academic called uh, Mamta mm-hmm. Akapati. Yeah, and I think it should also be read in relation to um, the writings of another academic who herself is a white woman, uh, Robin D'Angelo, uh, who coined the term white fragility, which has, I think, really made its way into mainstream or at least on- online mainstream discourse. Yeah, so it's actually a thing. We're not trying to offend you. But if you are offended, then take it up with the... Mm-hmm. the google in the mirror so <laughs> one of the lessons that i've learned <laughs> okay. i i end up producing a lot of the article the i produce a lot of the podcast so i will go back and edit things and when i listen i think uh I could be being very harsh on myself, but I think about conversation and I really think about the structure and how things work. And one of the things that the doing the podcast is teaching me, I hope it's teaching me, is learning how to listen, learning how mm. learning how I don't have to be last all the time. <laughs> um, like sometimes as academics, you can go like you can say something and then someone else can say something and you'll end up saying the exact same thing after them just like it's a go back and forth and right having the last having the last word um so just making me think about myself and how i engage and trying to think about put the message first no i think that's if i may add on to that um i i wonder if like if (laughs) i wonder if um you'd want to comment about the STEM side of this, but what you're talking about really makes me think the way that graduate school seminars and the humanities at least socialize us to value a certain type of discourse, which is not a collaborative one. It's so much Mm. about like the individual performance of people trying to be brilliant (laughs) at different times or being really combative. I don't know if that's also the case in STEM, but like, I feel it because obviously since our work is so discursive, like, Obviously, the literal discourse of the seminar room then mm-hmm. becomes a way that we're practicing how we're being discursive, and there ends up being a lot of like posturing and the way that you think about claiming your voice 
is often like an individualistic mm-hmm. act that comes at the expense of other people. That is not the same thing as what we're doing in a podcast where we're trying to like, it's both about a dialogue and difference, but also it's supposed to be a conversation and mm-hmm. that together we're trying to make a thing. Whereas in the seminar space, obvi- it's often not that. It's about individuals trying to let shine so that, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. the professor will look favorably upon them. It's about people jousting, trying to, to prove themselves, seeing how much airtime they could take up. I think that can happen. Definitely. Hmm. I think it does happen. But it doesn't happen universally. And I think some of that has to do with how siloed people are in their sciences. So people end up knowing their project very, very well. And maybe they understand what their fellow lab mates are doing because you work in the same lab and you have your individual group meetings where they are talking. But it can be it can be very difficult to be able to talk about my research and then be able to understand someone else's research to the level of detail where I can actually point out an error or feel like I can add something more than they can. It doesn't mean people don't try. <laughs> I have seen it, but it's not mm-hmm. often the case from my experience. But people do try to overtalk or they will say the same thing that someone already said or what the speaker said. Or it'll happen in the question section where people will ask questions that are really comments, which are really yeah. statements about their own work, about, about how work. they think your work Why is your actually work a piece work? of shit, about how they think your advisor is a piece of shit and they've been feuding for 10 years, but they're not going to say that. You know, it's just like wow. there's a historical context uh-huh. to it then. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. Or you want everyone in the room to know that you have a counter way of doing it and your way's a better way. Or you know that your idea has been highly controversial, but you still believe in it, so you will keep talking over people even though like, there's some evidence that suggests that what you're saying is not true. That does happen occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Zine, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't tort. I mean, yeah, I got to keep oh, torturing you. But I was going to wrap up and I was, no, I was going to wrap uh, up, you know, okay. and I was going to say, let's look forward. Yep. Let's turn to the right and the time scale on the axis of time. Let's turn right on the axis of time and go onward. Onward. Okay. To the future. You're thinking about this really hard. Just keep moving forward. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is like I used to work a lot on different types of temporality, so I'm just very much thinking about the construction of No, the of direction right. And, you know, cause as opposed to different types of script, script. Yeah, I know, but, like, because there's, like, a lot of other cultures where, like, because writing goes right to left as opposed to left to right, so futurity can be more associated with left. Anyway, this, sorry. Yeah, okay. This is why. Let so our frame of axis will be. English? Let's go forward. Let's move forward in time. <laughs> we were going to move forward into 2017. We're excited uh-huh. about what that is going to entail, and we're really glad that you, our listeners, will be there with us. And we would love to hear more from you about what ideas of what you'd like us to cover, current topics, ongoing topics. If you have 
suggestions mm-hmm. for people you would like to see interviewed on the podcast. We're also really excited about that. Liz and I are continuing to work to make this podcast better, upgrade our equipment. Yes, upgrading our equipment. We really want to make a better show for you guys, for ourselves, and for our growing PhDivas family. And we want you guys to have a front row seat as we do our postdocs and try to do this scary process called getting a job in academia as a tenure-track faculty. Mm-hmm. How do we survive the struggle? Yeah. And also, if you stay tuned, Liz has a really exciting announcement in 2017. And I'm not pregnant, and I'm not getting married. Just in case <laughs> my mom's listening. Sorry, mom. Uh, not happening. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> Liz is, Liz's awesomeness is going to be Yeah, I put my awesomeness in a bottle, and I sold yeah. it, and like people actually wanted it, so... Look out for that product. Now you're just like squeezing out yeah. more awesome. Smells producing. like roses too. See, see, I wasn't thinking perfume. I thought you were going to go for like, you know, the Jesus parable of like, you know, putting the light under the bushel. What? I didn't even remember thing. that. And like you were going <laughs> to. Putting the light hey, under the parable? I, what did you, you do again? It's like a, a, the whole parable of not, not of the talents, but like the whole thing about like putting, a, you don't put um, the light under a basket or whatever. Like you need to like share mm. it. Gonna have to go back over that part. Those pages of the Bible are stuck together for me. Or like the parable of the talents, you know, you don't just sow it; you have to make you have to make them multiply. Hmm. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, Liz is awesome and getting even more awesome, and you're gonna get a front row seat to that. Thank you, Zion. Thank you. With a surprise, Zion is also presenting at the Modern Language Association in January. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be awesome. She's got some papers coming out. Oh yes, and up pretty soon. Educating the world. Oh yes, I also so uh, I forgot we should also talk about our conference this thing. So I'm doing MLA, but I'll also be going to the Society of Early Americanists and to the Association for Asian Ooh. American Studies. And Liz is actually I'm, a keynote speaker in January. I am a panelist, <laughs> not quite a keynote oh, okay. speaker. <laughs> I so I'm participating in a conference for undergraduate women in physics annual meeting and I am also participating in the undergraduate um, component that they have for minority students. So I'm giving a panel and I'm hosting two workshops on building community and that's going to be in January and I'm very excited. It's at, at Harvard. Harvard or in yes. And then okay. and sometime in March we're also going to be doing our first non-Cornell show at Earlham College. We still have to figure out the details of that, but we'll oh, be yeah. giving another mm-hmm. talk there. So we've got some really exciting things coming up and some really exciting guests on the podcast. That we, I'm so excited to share these with you guys. Thank you so much for staying with us. 2016 was a rough year, but together we can do this. Support each other. Yeah. But if we hold on, we can make this work. Like the end song of Land Before Time. No. You remember that? If we hold on together, I know our dreams will never die. That's how the podcast is going to end. That. Oh, God. Am I terrible singing? Bye, you guys. Bye. 2017. <laughs>